when we gave, I think it was like $30 to a birth family member of one of our kids, which by the way, was kind of frowned upon. Um, we, you know, we weren't really supposed to. That was basically six months of what she needed. If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. Money without a purpose is really just a number on a page. John Hagginson understands that money isn't an end in itself. It's a tool that we can use for lots of purposes, both good and ill. As managing director at Creative Planning, a wealth management firm, John helps his clients create a financial plan that will allow them to be comfortable and hopefully allow them to share their resources through philanthropy. John's approach to money is underpinned by deep faith. He earned a bachelor's in biblical studies, which he paired, perhaps a bit uniquely, with a master's in financial services. He's authored two books, Unleash Your Investments, which contains no-nonsense financial advice, and The Retirement Flight Plan, which leans on his experience as an airline pilot to help readers stay focused on a safe landing when they are ready to retire. Husband and father of seven, John doesn't have a lot of spare time, so I'm grateful he took the time to speak with me. So let's get into it. John Hagginson, welcome. Welcome, John. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I know that we don't know each other as well as some of the guests I've had on the podcast, but that makes it all the more exciting, uh, both for our listeners and for me. I've heard a lot about you, but I'd really like it if you could share more about yourself, both personally and professionally, with our listeners uh, before I ask you any more specific questions. Sure. Well, thanks so much, first off, for having me and for all the great work that you guys are doing. Um, it's it's a fantastic organization and a a uh, wonderful opportunity to share a little bit of my thoughts uh, so that hopefully we can all together make the world a better place. Um, so that would be rather nice. Yeah, right. I, I, we're all <laughs> we're all shooting for the same thing here. So um, I am a first and foremost, a husband to my wife, Brittany, and I am a father to seven children. So that takes up a, a pretty significant portion of of my time. I'm also an entrepreneur uh, in wealth management. And recently, uh, the firm that I founded was acquired by a larger firm about a year ago. And now I am a partner. Uh, that at that firm. So there, that's sort of the cliff notes of, of who I am. Okay, John, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal story. And I think our listeners would as well. I actually thought that I was going to be an airline pilot for my entire life. Uh, professionally, that's what I was doing. I was flying based out of LAX, met my wife, and we began dreaming about having a large family. It just didn't feel like it was going to be a good fit for me to be traveling 23, 24 days a month for us to 
have as many kids as we as we were desiring and wanting to adopt, which I'll share here in a moment. And so I made a massive career change, uh, went back and got all my licenses and did some postgraduate work and and credentialing and began as what I would call a traditional broker. I called myself a financial advisor, but I was more or less a broker selling products uh, for commissions. And through the first five years of my career, began to realize that there was a much better way to do this than the industry had mostly uh, operated for the last 50, 60, 70 years. I was making decent money personally. And I you know, went to my wife and said, I've got a great idea. Let's start something completely new and different and have my income be zero. That, doesn't this sound like a fantastic idea? And so, <laughs> and so we, we did that. And I started a company called Keystone Wealth Partners. And the, the vision was really to provide objective advice for fees and to also integrate taxes and estate planning. So we were a law firm and a tax practice. And the idea was that all of these different disciplines impact your money. Yet most people are, are driving from their CPA's office on one side of town over to their broker's office, over to their you know, estate planning attorney's office. None of these people could pick each other out of a lineup. And so you're losing not only simplicity, but also potential benefits from a monetary standpoint of actually having those professionals coordinating your services. And so fortunately for me, it resonated with the public and, and we grew really fast and we were fortunate to be uh, named twice in a row by CityWire, the fastest independent wealth management firm in the state of Arizona, where we were based out of. And it eventually led to last year us being acquired by basically the largest firm in our space that does exactly what we did. So instead of a couple attorneys, a couple CPAs, a smaller team, we're at a firm now that manages or advises on $225 billion uh, and has you know 50 plus attorneys and 100 CPAs. And so um, that was an interesting journey, not one that I expected. I never anticipated selling. I'm still very much involved at the new company, which is exciting for me because my wife says uh, that I will never retire. I would be way too bored. And so I, I enjoy doing what I do and look forward to doing that now with Creative Planning, the new company that I'm with. From a personal standpoint, if you had told me when I was in college that I actually had a two-year-old in Ethiopia, I would have been very confused. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what you're talking about. Uh, and then about a year later, if you had said, oh yeah, you just had another kid born uh, over in Mahalmeda, Ethiopia, I would, would definitely have been surprised. And so we never anticipated adopting older children, but God put these situations of these kiddos in front of us. And we're so blessed and thankful that we pursued those. Really, it's my wife. It's her doing. Uh, she came to me and said, hey, here's this, this child that's in need and, and he's ready to be adopted. And I looked at the kid and I said, oh, that's a really cute kid. He was you know, 10 or 11 years old. And I went back to watch an NFL you know, for the day. And she came back to me a day or two later and said, you know, I, I've been thinking about this. I've been praying on it. I really think that that, that child's supposed to be our son. And I said, wait a second, like the 10 the year old that you just showed me is supposed to be our son? Like you're 25 years old, Brittany. Like we don't even know what we're doing with our current one and a half year old. Like, how, we can't parent preteens that don't know English and have past trauma and all like, th there's no way. She had the vision and intuition long before I did. Because all she said was just give it some thought and pray on it. That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to commit to this. I know it sounds crazy, but don't disregard it because I feel a strong sense that this is what we're supposed to be doing. And fast forward, we've adopted four children, two domestically. We have open adoptions with those children, our two children from Ethiopia, and then we have three biological kids. So family of seven, appreciate you having me on the podcast, Charlie, because this is relaxing for me. 
This is just kind of hanging out. This is like a vacation compared to what's going on at home because our kids span from a 21 year old down to one. That's our age difference, age gap. Amazing. Uh, Thanks so much. And I think our listeners would really like to hear that story. And there's so much you've talked about uh, that's of real interest and and value to people, um, whether they're secularists like myself or people who have much closer relationship with um, their idea about God. um, I think everyone can benefit from this story for sure. I know I have. Thanks, Charlie. Can you tell the audience who may not really be familiar with what wealth management is all about. I've listened to your podcast and feel free to let the audience know what your podcast is because I think they may benefit from that. But can you tell the audience a little bit more about what you what is wealth management? We're a law firm, uh, a tax practice, as well as a financial planning firm. Wealth management really encompasses financial planning, tax strategies. We file our clients' tax returns if they need us to do that. Um, business planning, risk management, Uh, estate planning, obviously charitable giving. We'll be talking about philanthropy, which is a passion of both of ours today. So it's really looking at the entire picture for someone and saying, how do we help you accomplish your goals? Acknowledging that money without a purpose is really just a number on a page. There's not a lot of value to growing your net worth if you don't ever link that to something with more purpose. And so that's a big part of what we do as well is say, how can this not only impact your life and those lives around you that you care about, your family and your friends, but also at a broader level, society and and those in need. Great. We'll get back to that in a minute in terms of talking to your clients about the various aspects of their lives, um, because I think it sounds like that's a very important and a really rewarding part of what you do and what the people in your organization do. Let me ask you this. What have been the most important influences on your own personal development? Yeah, I would say two different things come to mind. The first is my faith. And having a worldview that, you know, may be a bit countercultural, and I know we'll, we'll get into this some today, but culture, especially American culture, a lot of it's how do I make myself happy now, right? Like, like what, what is self-fulfilling? And for me, my faith has always shown me a foundation that says there's more than just the here and now and what I can do for myself. And there's, there's a bigger picture out there. That's been a huge thing for me. Uh, the second thing is a more um, hands-on practical, which is international travel. So that has had a major influence on me. I'll share a story with you. Uh, when I was a 16-year-old at Seattle Christian High School, I took a trip over to Bucharest, Romania to work in the orphanages and not really knowing what I was going to, to get out of this trip other than, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. My first evening there, I stayed at a host family's apartment and I I went up this high-rise apartment building in a in an elevator, you know, where you pull the gate across to get it to go up and everybody's got their laundry hung out all over the railings around the the downtown area. And long story short, it was a two bedroom apartment in a family of 11. And they sat me down and they began bringing me tea and cheese and various foods. And I remember having this moment, even as a punk high schooler, you know, um, feeling a sense of, of gratitude and their hospitality in the midst of obviously them not having the material goods that we do in America that we take for granted. One thing in particular stood out was that they fed me and none of them ate. So they all crowded around me watching me eat and bringing me, you know, seconds and thirds and, and, and more helpings. And I remember asking my translator the next day, because it was sort of a game of charades, they weren't speaking English and we're kind of just kind of smiling saying, thank you. And, and he said, well, John, of course they didn't eat. 
And I said, what do you mean? Of course they didn't eat. And he said, they never eat like that. They've been saving and preparing for you to be their guest for weeks. And it hit me in that moment. And it's something I apply professionally in my life as well, uh, helping people with their money. I had really two primary takeaways. And, and the first was that money in and of itself isn't going to make us happy. Because I saw people there in Romania and in my other travels that have absolutely nothing from a material standpoint, yet they radiate joy with every fiber of who they are. And there's so much that we can learn as Americans, wealthy Americans, from that. But then the second takeaway I had was money, although it won't make us happy in and of itself, is an incredibly powerful tool in our lives when we use it in alignment with things that matter to us. Because whether we like it or not, money is needed and necessary to accomplish things that matter. That's the world that we live in. And so when, when I started thinking about it that way, it really was one of the aspects that directed me ultimately into wealth management, because although it sometimes can seem like a superficial <laughs> line of work, you know, helping people that are already, you know, the millionaire next door or ultra affluent people manage their money well and reduce taxes. And I, well, no, it, there's a deeper meaning to it and a good certainly that you've seen, Charlie, with the organization that you're working with when those monies can be put to, to use for things that are really important. That's really interesting. I'm fascinated by people of faith because I've always been a secular person and I was raised as a secular person. But one of my closest colleagues at The Life You Can Save is a woman who's a devout Christian and feels that she's guided by Christ in her everyday life and that she feels like she could really not function nearly as well without that guidance. And I have to say, even though I'm completely secular, that I am envy of her guidance because there's so many times in my life I feel like, geez, I could use a little guidance. <laughs> and it sounds like you've got it. And uh, that must be a wonderful feeling. It is. But you know, and it's a big responsibility because so often as a Christian, I'm a terrible representation of actually what <laughs> what Christ's life looked like, you know, which was uh, to be a servant and to, you know, the idea of the last being first and the first being last and humbling yourself. And so sometimes people will say, well, I don't know about Christianity because, um, you know, I, I know a lot of Christians and they're, they're, I don't know, I don't know about how they're living their life. And I say, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely hypocrites, um, all trying to do the best job that we can. But I think for me, it's definitely a guiding principle of something beyond yourself. I don't think that hypocrisy is owned by Christians or any religion. <laughs> I have to say- Haven't cornered I the think, market. <laughs> no, not exactly. Because, I mean, I think of my own life, but I look around at the, the affluence or even in some sense, the affluence of the middle class, working class of the United States. And we all say that human lives are our most important value and saving human lives are most important value. But I don't really see m most of us acting on that on a regular basis. And certainly for a lot of my life, all I felt was the closeness of my family and those human lives, but not people that I later fortunately came in contact with through my work at The Life You Can Save. So I like to say sometimes that although we're supposedly saving lives at The Life You Can Save, and I really believe we are actually saving lives, I feel like sometimes my life is the one that, that got saved by that. Uh, by that connection with the, the group of people that I'm currently working with. But we can talk more about that in a minute. I wanted to ask you, as you 
both as a Christian, as somebody who's traveled internationally, and someone who sounds like you're very open to people, different people's faith, because the country you traveled to in Romania at that time was probably quite different in terms of their social and political outlook, um, not just the material conditions. But what do you see as the three biggest problems in the world today? It doesn't have to be three. It could be it's two. A, it's it could a be good four. question. Um, I think the deterioration of the family unit as a whole has had a ripple effect on society because when you have a close knit family unit and that's a priority, you're a parent to a couple of children. I know that was a big priority to you and your wife and your lives. And it is obviously with grandchildren now. It still is. <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't stop. No, people always say that's the benefit of having kids is you get the grandchildren, right? So yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, and you get to drop them off at the end of the evening. When our my in laws are watching our seven kids, uh, and we come back after even you know maybe a staycation gone for one day, they are like, "Wow, I, I don't know how you guys do this day in and day out. We're ready to go sleep for the next twenty four hours." You know, so exactly. <laughs> um, but I th but I think the family unit's so important, and I think if you look at societies over the history of humanity, the stronger that family unit is, the stronger the society can be. Um, and I think we've had a deterioration of that. And part of that even may stem from a sense of individualism that are- It's so funny you mentioned that. I'll, Mike Schur told me when I interviewed him, I don't know if you know, but he's the Hollywood producer who did The Good Place, that he thought that individualism was the single biggest problem hmm. in the world today, in the United States. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that, 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 that the impact of that obviously is widespread. And one of those things would be, you know- even for instance, like, why would I want to have kids? That's kind of an inconvenience to me. And I'm not shaming people that choose not to have kids. I mean, it's a very personal choice, but I'm saying, I think that to some extent, the choices aren't made in many cases in American society based upon like a broader vision, but more so what is right for me and me alone right now. So I'd say that's one thing. And then extreme poverty, you know, spending time in Ethiopia and some of these other countries that I've been to, and you see actual extreme poverty. And you realize how can anyone pursue their best life when they don't have things like clean water? I mean, they don't have shelter. And then the third thing I would say is a lack of quality education. Because when, when you go to these various places, as I'm sure you have, and you look around and I felt just a sense of complete, completely overwhelmed by the scope and magnitude of the poverty. And one of my takeaways was we can help as much as we can, but probably the first step is creating an educational system as well that allows them from within to make progress. And how are they able to do that if the children are growing up in these villages and unable to even read or write? It doesn't create opportunity. I don't think most people in the United States realize that in Africa, there are school fees and that it's, public education is not free. Mm -hmm. And so not only are families motivated to keep their children home because they need them to work on the farm or they need them to be at home for other reasons, but they can't afford the basic school fees. Forget about the books or the clothes and, and other things. And so school fees alone are, are something that we're, we're not really aware of here. Yeah. I mean, let, let, to add to that, Charlie, when we adopted our two boys um, who are now 21 and 19, uh, when they were 11 and nine from a rural village in Ethiopia, we had bought them some books, some Ethiopian books and a Bible in Amharic, which is their language, because we knew they didn't know a word of English and they had never turned on a light switch and they had never seen running water. I mean, it was just, a, you know, a complete, completely massive transition for them. 
And we quickly realized when we handed them these books, they didn't know how to read, even in their native language. And my wife and I, of course, you know, there were a whole lot of surprises along the way with those adoptions, but that was one where we, we thought to ourselves, wow, they're in what would be fifth grade, sixth grade, and fourth grade here in America, and they haven't been given the tools to read and write. And, and, and so that was my big kind of aha moment that for things to get better internally, the education system has to improve. I completely agree. And the life you can save is definitely wanting to address uh, nonprofits in the developing world that are dealing with education, particularly the education of women and girls, yep. because we know that educating women and young girls has a magnifying effect because even though they don't have a lot of authority in these societies, they have a huge amount of power um, and they can influence things tremendously, but much more so if they have education, for example, choosing not to have a million kids uh, if they don't want them, they can have them if they want them. But we know that uh, when girls get educated, they generally choose to have fewer children, birth rates go down. So there are all kinds of things that happen that make uh, a family uh, more viable and a community more viable in those areas. Sure. Well, ch children are a blessing, but they're certainly expensive as well <laughs> to care for. Yeah. There's no question. Today, we're inviting you to be part of something truly transformative, the Life You Can Save's Education Cause Fund. If you believe in the power of education and want to make a lasting impact on children's lives, this is your chance. Hi, I'm Katie Stanford, head of research at the Life You Can Save. Your support means quality education for all, boosting life skills and opportunities. We're spotlighting girls' education, unleashing their potential and improving communities. With over 244 million kids worldwide out of school, your donation matters more than ever. Please visit thelifeyoucansave.org and join the movement for a brighter future. I'm thrilled that not only do I have two children, but now three grandchildren and another one on the way. But I'm lucky enough to be able to afford them on the other exactly. yeah, on the other hand. Mm -hmm. We all use a lot of resources uh, that other people could be using. So it is mixed, but you chose to adopt your children and that is a way of mitigating some of the negative effects and still having all the tremendous positive effects. So that is more than a little admirable. I'd like to turn to your role in life as a financial advisor, but also somebody who's educating other financial advisors and ask you how your view of the world influences your work that you do with clients and how you integrate your own personal views and their best interests financially and how you, how you walk that tightrope. Personal finance is much more personal often than it is finance, as I like to say. And it's a, an honor and a privilege to have a seat at the table with people related to something as meaningful in their life and as something that they care about. So, you know, maybe to some extent, almost more than we should as Americans, you know, when it comes to our money. But I think getting people to think broader about how their money can be used for good is an incredible responsibility. And I think it really starts with a great financial plan. Now I'm putting on my my wealth manager hat here, my certified financial planner hat. Of uh, but but well, go ahead. Yeah. I think it's valuable well, for our audience. Yeah, so so I think sometimes the value in having a financial plan in many cases is that it gives people confidence in their plan that they have enough. And so rather than having a scarcity mindset of I'm not sure if I can give while I'm alive, and I'm not sure how generous I can be with my money because 
you know, nobody wants to do that and then be living in their kid's basement when they're 80 because they've run out of money and mismanaged their finances. And so when you can provide people with a level of confidence that there is a surplus and create an actual giving plan within the financial plan, now we're getting somewhere and their impact can be increased along with their peace of mind because they're not worried as they're giving that, you know, whether or not they can afford it. I think that's an incredibly important aspect. I mean, obviously there are tax advantages when people give. So pointing those things out that people might not be aware of to be able to increase their giving or see even a financial benefit to the giving can be a powerful aspect as well in a financial plan. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it surprises me, Charlie. I'm sure it has with you over your <laughs> your life as well. I have a seat at thousands of people's, you know, an intimate look at thousands of people's finances. And there are some people that even if you show them all those things, they're not going to give money. They're just not going to do it. And there are other people who are willing to give the shirt off their back, even if it's the last one they have. And there are a lot of people in the middle, right? Because a lot of times I can't change the, those two you know, ends of the spectrum, but there's a lot of folks who are more in the middle who say, I'd like to give. I, I think so often it's out of sight, out of mind. The problems nearest to home are the ones that we are most aware of. And so I think there's an extra friction to giving overseas because it requires, I mean, if, if every single person could go to our kids' rural village in, in Ethiopia and see the need, that 94% wouldn't look like 94%, right? But we don't have that put in front of us on a regular basis. And so I think, you know, organizations like yours, where you're trying to educate on the impact of an American dollar in some of these other countries and how much further it can go. And, and also, while there is massive need everywhere, including the United States. I'm not discounting that. When you go somewhere and, and see children that are malnourished and are, are literally starving and have no clothes and don't have any access to clean water and don't have even an opportunity to go to school without judging the level of need, it's pretty profound. You, you, you do kind of look around and go, well, this isn't that prevalent here in America. Like I'm not seeing this. And my money can stretch so much further when I give it internationally to some of these places. And are you able to bring that up with your clients and, and have a reasonable dialogue with this group in the middle? I'm not talking about the people sure. who are dead set against giving or the people who give off the, the shirt off their back. I assume they give everywhere. But what about this massive group in the middle? How do you introduce this subject? Is it Do you find it like you're worried? I don't think you would be, but I know a lot of financial advisors worried about alienating their clients? If clients feel like they're being judged for either not giving or where they're giving, they'll shut down. So I think it's like a lot of things in life. You, you want to approach it with humility and empathy and, and a genuine interest in helping them understand kind of your perspective, but also learning their perspective. But I think it's a conversation that absolutely comes up because it's usually, hey, here's about how much from an efficiency standpoint of the plan we can give. Here would be the tax implications how do we do that most effectively? Let me ask you something that you asked Dan, who's, uh, whose wife works with us at The Life You Can Save, who is a guy you work with. You asked Dan how he negotiates differences between spouses when it comes to financial planning. Do you, do you notice that there are significant differences between spouses when, or partners when it comes to financial, I mean, philanthropy? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm chuckling as you're saying it, because sometimes I feel like more of a marriage counselor than a wealth manager. Husbands and wives, as you know, being, being a married man, um, we don't see eye to eye on everything. 
right? And that's okay because if you've got a good spouse, hopefully that dialogue and that back and forth and those uh, different perspectives make both of you better. But there is often a difference in how much to give and where to give. And so when I when I look at that, I think it's 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 a it's twofold. It's it's or maybe it's threefold. It's figuring out first off how much to give, and then it's really where are we going to give it, which is kind of the final step. Is you know it's like are we going to give? How much are we going to give? And then where are we going to give that? And absolutely, there are differences in what husbands and wives may feel compelled to do. And so you either split the donations and 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 the wife picks half the money where it's going to go and the husband picks half the money where it's going to go. Or, you know, in many cases, if they've got a great marriage, they arrive at something that they both are really passionate about through that dialogue and through that open discussion. And I've been really fortunate in my life because we chose, after many years of doing very little, as I suggested, uh, we chose to really help people living in extreme poverty through actually giving directly to the life you can save itself so that we could grow the organization and have greater impact. Uh, my wife and I, my wife was a bit ahead of me in being philanthropic all our lives, but in the end, I think we were in lockstep and I, oh, I know how fortunate um, I, I was, but I think there may be something, even though people say, oh, don't fall in love in high school mm -hmm. or something to me, it was amazing to be able to grow up with the same person and just go through these different life stages. It was it made things a lot easier, I think, at least in our case. And certainly when it came to difficult choice about giving a lot of money away, and I don't mean to give the impression that Diane and I now live in a cabin. We certainly don't. But it was still a big decision, and uh, we've been able to continue it, and we're we're really very fortunate. That's such a blessing. I, if I can add to that, I remember my wife and my first date sitting on Mill Avenue in Tempe, Arizona, outside Starbucks. And it's not really a first date conversation, but we were talking about adoption. Um, I had wow. had that Romania experience and some others. My wife had um, been through various things in her life that had led her working with special needs children to wanting to do so. So it was really cool because before we even fully fell in love, we knew that foundationally we both were on the same page, big picture about where our passions lie. And that's been a huge blessing in our lives and our marriage as well, because that was something that we felt very uh, congruent on, which, is, which has been really cool. I'd like to turn my attention now to the very wealthy people that are listening to you. And they're, they're listening to you because they are interested in you and what you're doing, probably more so when you circulate uh, this podcast than the life you can save itself. How do we get very wealthy people to do what maybe Warren Buffett or Bill Gates have done, which and they represent a very small fragment of the ultra wealthy. How do we get people to realize it's not a matter of them not having enough because they, they must know that. How do we get them to become dramatically more generous than they are? Because that's the problem that I'm facing at this stage of my life and my career to raise lots of money, either for the life you can save or lots of money for our recommended nonprofits that are saving lives and reducing suffering. How do we get, how do you unlock that philanthropy key, if you will? That's a bad metaphor, but you, I think you understand what I'm saying. It starts at a foundational belief, like in that person's ethos, that a lot of what they have is a component of luck. Now, I'm not someone who disregards hard work or, 
you know, says we're all just drifting around, you know, being blown and tossed like a wave of the, you know, by like a wave of the sea, whichever, which way, and we have no control over our our outcomes. But I think if we all acknowledge like, okay, we were born in America, right? You're highly educated. You had an opportunity to go to some great schools. Like my children have as well. And like, I've had opportunities that were completely outside of my control. And if you look at most ultra wealthy Americans, and I'm not describing myself as that, but when you look at that, those people, there's been a component of luck. And when you acknowledge that, it takes a level of humility. And once you do that, you start saying, yes, this is quote unquote, my money, but maybe it's more, I'm responsible to steward this money that I've been blessed with. And yes, I've worked hard for, but the purpose of this money is not simply to satisfy my own selfish desires for the rest of my life. It's to enjoy some of it, right? That, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but also how can I use this in a way that blesses others? And practically, uh, there's a lot of debate around how we solve wealth inequality in America. And if, if there was an easy answer, it would have already been solved. But one of the things that I'm a big fan of is considering a higher estate tax. One of the arguments about solving wealth inequality is if you increase income taxes even significantly more. Well, now maybe if that person's a business owner that's really wealthy, that slows down some of their business growth and it, what's the impact on employees and does it eventually end up hurting these charities that that could potentially get get the money, you know? And, and obviously that's widely, widely debated. But one of the things that's, I think, less controversial is does someone need to have, does a great grandchild need to have $200 million because four generations earlier, someone created a business, right? And so that would be an easy opportunity to get more money into the system and hopefully redistributed. Now, the counter to that also is how effective is the government at stewarding that money and getting that to the right places, which, you know, is, is, is I think a separate argument that often gets lumped into, well, I don't think we should do that because I don't have a total confidence in the government that it'll go to the right place. Um, I think those are two separate things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I do think that part of it's probably going to need to be forced <laughs> by like higher estate taxes or something to that extent. But I think the, the better way to go about it or, or one of the other effective ways to go about it's how do we get people to recognize, to stop for a moment. We're so busy. Just stop for a minute and truly see what the need is that's out there. I think that we've done a terrible job, even at the life you can save, I have to say, at giving people this warm glow that they get from helping somebody really close to them, a neighbor, their church, we are really bad at getting people to have that warm glow that you've experienced from being in Ethiopia, from international travel. If, when they give money, they don't really feel that it's going to have the impact that it actually does. And we're needing to do a much better job of getting people to understand that. And to research, I, I'm curious about your opinion about this. How do we get people to do some research about the impact of their giving? I mean, even if it's to spend 35 minutes on the Life You Can Save website so that they can look at what that impact is and then maybe question it and do some other research. How do we get people to do that? Have you been at any success at figuring out how to do that with clients? Well, I think it's one of the ways that technology, while it's a double-edged sword, can be a huge blessing because to get an ultra, you know, someone that's maybe considered ultra affluent to fly over to Africa and see it for themselves. I mean, obviously those vision trips are are very effective. If you can get someone to fly over there and see it for themselves, they're they're almost certainly going to donate money, right? Because now they actually see the impact. But I think technology has given us the opportunity to potentially reach that person 
in a more effective way, that's a lower barrier to entry. But the challenge at this point is that we don't have a shortage of information. (laughs) We are bombarded. And when you look at people that are wealthy, they're being approached on a daily basis by organizations that are seemingly doing good in the world. And I think, frankly, it can be overwhelming for those people to even know where to start to maximize their impact. So I think that's part of it too, is how do you, how do you cut through all the noise in their lives to really reach them in a way where they say, you know what, that's a worthwhile thing to spend my time and my resources toward solving. Let me ask you a question and I want a really honest answer before, and I'm telling the listeners, we, I don't know what the answer is going to be here. <laughs> okay. So I'm being, before you had this interview, before you knew you were going to do this interview, you really didn't know much about the life you can save for Peter Singer. Is that correct? Correct. I heard from Jordan that you actually went on our website and did some looking around. A, what did you think of the website and the kind of information you got? And was it plausible? If we are able to get the book, which you probably haven't read yet, but maybe will as a result of being on the show today, um, if, if you are able to just get the website in the hands of people, how believable is our information? Is it motivational? Do you think it has, it has any positive impact? I think it absolutely, yeah, I I think it. Yeah, and I don't know the answer (laughs) you're going to give me here. No, it's all terrible. No, I'm just kidding. I actually don't think that at all. I can edit it out, you know, if you don't, if I don't like the answer, we'll just edit it out. Perfect. Yeah, this question won't exist. Um, No, I, I thought it was, I think it's really actually very good. The thought that I have when I even think about marketing financial services, for example, or a differentiation of wealth management in terms of how we do it at creative planning versus a competing firm, for example. I think you've got to catch people's attention today in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Like that's the thing that I've learned is people don't have enough interest for the most part, especially initially to spend more than, I mean, in some cases a minute. Oh yeah. 90 seconds, you know? And so I think whatever is the most important part of your value proposition and your story and the differentiation, it needs to be, clearly articulated as quickly as possible. And then allowing for people to dive deeper, like someone that wants to read the book or do other things, right? But those are such bigger commitments that I think that it's got to basically captivate almost immediately on the differentiation. You know, and I know you guys have a lot of those things. One of the, one of the things that, that stood out to me, and I'm, I'm a tiny sample size, so I don't know if this is a good proxy for you in terms of evaluating the site, but the acknowledgement of the impact and I guess you could say leverage of an of a US dollar in other countries. So that impact calculator. You, you, I thought that, that was saw. huge. And 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 again, maybe part of that is because of my history that, you know, when we gave 30, I think it was like $30 to a birth family member of one of our kids, which by the way was kind of frowned upon. Um we you know we weren't really supposed to, but um we saw a huge need and just said, I know we're not really supposed to do this, but um but we're going to help them out. That was basically six months of what she needed. $30. And that, by the way, that was partly, Charlie, why they don't want you to do it. Because it actually puts them physically at risk if other people find out that they have $30. I mean, they can be robbed and, and beat up. So you've got to be very careful. And these aren't things we think about. I mean, we give we spend $30, you know, on on an Uber or DoorDash without even, you know, I mean, you don't even think about it. So 
But you know, one of the one of the charities we recommend is called Give Directly, and they have a huge amount of evidence now that giving cash directly to people in the developing world actually is highly effective, and that people really? don't go out and yeah. You, I really urge you. I mean, obviously, I want our listeners to not only give to our recommended charities, but we could use a lot of money at the Life You Can Save itself to magnify our impact. But I urge you, John, in particular, to go look at Give Directly and the research that they've amassed on the value of direct cash transfers. The Jameen Bank, uh, the guy, you know, won the Nobel Prize for microloans, but actually direct cash transfers are proving more effective than microloans. And it's really nice for someone like yourself who trusted $30 to the birth mother. But in fact, when you give to an entire community, you don't run into some of the knock-on effects that you do if somebody, only one person is getting it. So I, w- I urge everybody listening to go look at Give Directly uh, on our website or on Give Directly's website. Well, what's the what's can... the reason for that, Charlie, if I might ask? So it basically is giving directly like in the exact scenario that I Let said, me, but giving directly uh, to an yeah. entire society or entire community. To a village, yeah, to a, village, a yep. particular village. And they have done a lot of randomized controlled trials where they look at the relative effectiveness where they give it, where they don't give it, and what the ultimate two-year and long-term effects are. And it's it's quite a real, it's quite an interesting organization and they do it through cell phones and they actually distribute the cell phone, which is where they send the cash. And the cell phone, which is very inexpensive, gets deducted from the cash transfer. But 91 cents of every dollar that you give to give directly goes directly in the pocket of people in one of these villages. And what they find is they'll do things like put a corrugated roof instead of a thatch roof on their home, which protects their food, protects their family, protects their animals. And that a year, two years, and three years down the road, that income increase is sustained. And we have Village Enterprises, another organization that does a combination of direct cash transfers and education, which are called graduation programs. So I I agree with you that you've got to capture people's attention. And my experience at the Men's Warehouse, I don't the audience may not know, but I was way back when president of the men's warehouse and in charge of marketing. And our ads were obnoxious. And everybody who has heard them, basically you have George Zimmer saying, you could buy this suit at Macy's, the department store for X, and we sell the exact same suit for $100 less, I guarantee it. And that commercial consolidated the tailored clothing industry in North America, in Canada and the United States, not Mexico. And so it was all this very simple message. So. The message doesn't give you a warm glow because you're buying a stupid little suit, but we've got to figure out a way to do that better. So I'm hearing that you found the website somewhat compelling and you're urging us to make the messages pithier and shorter. Yes. Okay. Well, this has been really interesting. I'm going to end with a difficult question, but I probably could frame a little bit of your answer now because I've listened to you now for uh, 45 minutes and, uh, it's been more than a little uh, interesting, and I hope we can continue uh, this relationship over time and I can continue to learn from you. But my final question is, John, what do you think it means to live a moral life? It's one of those uh, seemingly simple questions that doesn't have an easy answer, right? Oh, I thought you were going to give me a pithy answer <laughs> that could really catch my attention. I will. Here it is. Here's your headline, right? Uh, no, but g- giving more to the world than you take. I mean, there I, there's a book. There's a book entitled "How Full Is Your Bucket," 
And every new employee at Creative Planning receives this, this book um, when they start. And, and the basic premise is that every interaction that we have with anyone, we're either giving something and fill, you know toward their bucket, we're filling it up, or we're taking from it. And I think living a moral life means that the world's a better place because you were alive and that those around you are better off because of your existence. Well, I think you've given our listeners way more than you're taking. And uh, I appreciate it. And I'm leaving uh, with some really interesting thoughts again about as a secular person about how faith can guide one's life. And I think if we live in a world where people like you and me or me and Stacy, the, the highly religious person I work closely with, can get along and respect each other's worldview, I guess that would be a big victory. I don't think it would solve the problems of people living in a poverty, but it, it might be something really useful. So thank you very much, John. Um, I really appreciate your spending this time with us. Thank you for having me, Charlie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.